To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgression, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this is your word. But we don't pretend to be able to grasp it and surely not apply it to our lives without your help. So we ask right now that your spirit would speak through your word that you would give Anthony the words he needs to give to us that we need so that we may all leave here transformed by an encounter with you. Thank you for your truth. Would you speak? Because we're listening. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. I don't appreciate all the business about my title. (laughs) Today, obviously, if the uh, terrible title didn't already give it away, Uh, I am going to be talking about the Torah, or what we would more commonly call in English, the law. Uh, Most of us, whether we believe in the Bible or not, are familiar with the Ten Commandments or laws found in the first five books of the Bible. However, what is perhaps a lesser known fact is that there are more than just ten laws uh, occupying space in these first five books. In fact, There's a lot more. 613, to be precise. A set of civil, ceremonial, and moral laws covering everything from beard grooming etiquette to telling fortunes and interpreting omens. And what's really interesting is that for the past 2,000 years, Christians have had questions around what role these laws should or should not play in our, in our everyday post-resurrection life as Christians. To oversimplify this argument, I'm not going to 
cover all of that, that would be impossible. But to oversimplify this argument, uh, it kind of goes like this. Some suggest that the law is everything, while others say that the law is nothing. And I would like to present a position to you this morning that suggests that both ideas have merit. Now, in terms of context, in chapter 3 of Galatians, Paul is actually working through this argument, hence why we're talking Torah today. You see, some of Paul's opponents were confused and offended by the message of grace that he declared in the gospel, and therefore, they they were reduced to making some misguided um, assumptions about him. And to put it simply, they thought that if one obtains salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, and not by ascribing to the rites and the rituals of Judaism, then Paul, he must be tossing out and therefore trashing the Torah in order to accomplish this feat. And to that, Paul would simply say, "Uh, I'm pretty sure you're misunderstanding me. I'm pretty sure you don't know what I'm talking about. So let me explain what I'm actually saying about the law. In fact, I want you to notice uh, several things that he points out to us in terms of this text today. I want you to notice the timing of the law, the transgressions the law exposes, and the true function of, that the law uh, exercises as a tutor and a trap, okay? So notice the timing of the law, the transgressions the law exposes, and the true function as a tutor and trap. You thought you were only getting one alliteration, Mike. Yeah, I'm I'm laid on heavy. It's coming, here it comes. So let's talk about timing, okay, timing. In verse 16, Paul says, now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It's important to note that the Torah is much more than a collection of laws. In fact, as John has developed very well for us in the previous weeks, it's a story, not a fragmentation and disjointed division of ideas and history, but a story about a God who calls and makes a covenant with his people. The establishing of this starts with a man named Abraham, and Paul reminds us here in this text of that very fact. In Genesis 15, God promises Abraham land, life, and a multitude of family. In fact, God tells Abraham that he is ultimately going to be a conduit of blessings for many nations. And this is what we call a covenant. Verse 16 again says, the promises were made to Abraham, to his offspring. And then he says something really interesting here, and I want you to notice it. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul, he gets clever here, employing the word seed. And notice, it's singular, not plural, and therefore, in its most profound and topped-up meaning, it refers to one person and not many. And that one person, Paul maintains And he has maintained throughout the course of Galatians is that Abraham's true seed is Christ Jesus himself. 
commenting on this section, Timothy George explains something really helpful. He says, Paul may have been responding here to the popular Jewish claim that they alone, along with a few proselytes, were the true sons of Abraham. Paul wanted to show that the greater fulfillment of the promise is not biological, but Christological. In other words, Jesus and his death on the cross is the perfect fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. And I think it makes Matthew 26, 28 today particularly powerful for us. And if you forgot it, I'll remind it to you. It says, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the, many for the forgiveness of sins. As you uh, take communion today, remember how we to today share in the promise given to Abraham ages and ages and ages ago. Now, I won't belabor this point anymore, but notice the distinction that Paul makes around the law in verse 17, because this is really where he gets to talking Torah. He says, this is what I mean. And that's very helpful. If you're ever reading the Bible and the author says, this is what I mean, this is what it means. Uh, it says, the law which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. To quote uh, Mr. Spock, it is only logical if the law of Moses, which came 430 years later, is the way of salvation, then it means that God has changed his mind around what he had previously said to Abraham. It would mean that God had decided that we did not need a savior from Abraham's seed and that God's blessing would now be dispersed on the basis of our performance of Moses' law and not the promise given to Abraham. And that leads us to a really important question, one that we have to ask if we're really considering the role the law plays in the life of a believer. And it's this. What is it? Is it performance or is it promise? Is it our performance or is it promise? In the giving of the law, was God adding obedience demands to his covenantal promises? Was he adding obedience demands? Big question, because whether we have consciously sorted through that in our minds, that is the struggle that we have in our everyday life as Christians. Our obedience demands placed upon the covenant promise. Well, the good news, Paul, in the text, he gives the answer in verse 19. Again, why then the law? He said, that's a clue that he's going to give us the answer. Why then the law? He says, it was added because of transgressions. The reason the law was given was for transgressions. Paul's clear. The law was never intended to save us. It was intended to show us our sin. He says it was added because of transgressions. So why the law? To show you that you're a sinner. The great reformer, Martin Luther, he, uh, he offers a Latin phrase, phrase with, which helps with the scope of, of understanding around what, what uh, Paul means here. It's a Latin phrase. He says, legis semper accusat. Legis semper accusat. Or the law always accuses. The law always accuses. The law was given, you see, to show us that we are 
lawbreakers. That's why we have the law, to show us that we break laws. Paul says, it's given for transgressions. Author of the book, My Year of Living Biblically, A.J. Jacobs, who spent a year attempting to adhere to all 613 laws of Torah, adequately called it, the year, uh, the, the year is that, uh, that I almost pretended to be a better person. <laughs> he, he called it the year I almost pretended to be a better person. That's a really honest assessment uh, of, of obedience. That's funny, and it's so true. You see, as, as individuals... We cannot live up to the lofty standards of the law. That's why it's therefore transgressions. We can pretend, but that's all it will ever be in our lives. We can pretend to live the law, but that's all it will ever be. It will will always be pretend. You see, with the law, you cannot fake it until you make it. Like, you can, like, I think I faked it until I made it as a pastor. Um, uh, and John saying, that's, I'm still on the fence about that. Uh, you can fake it until you make it in a job. But in terms of God's law, Paul's saying that you can't. It's impossible. It exists for transgressions. And then, if you're really familiar with the Bible... Then Jesus takes the law, and then he, and then he like, dials it up. Like, have you ever seen Back to the Future, where Marty McFly is about to rip a chord on his electric guitar, and he just, you know, turn, he turns the, all the dials to 10, and then he rips that chord, and everything explodes? Well, that's what Jesus did when he was talking uh, the law. It just was explosive. It was, it was dynamite. And he took the law, which we thought we understood, and we thought we could carry out, and then he, and, he, and he drives it much deeper in our hearts, especially when you take, for example, Matthew 5, 21 and 22. Because there, Jesus says that to resent or disdain anyone is a form of murder. To actually have resentment or disdain for a human being is actually a form of murder. And, and it's true. If, he, if Jesus is right, that's true. And you know what that makes me? That makes me a serial killer. Right? Not you guys, of course. Of course not. Of course not. All oh, you sweethearts and pacifists. <laughs> And before anybody gets judgy, see, I wrote this in my note because I knew there was going to be some judgment coming my way and disturbing when the pastor says I'm a serial killer. <laughs> Say I'm gross and who, that's nonsense. But let's break it down even further. Like, how many of you told a lie? Have you ever told a lie? Yeah. Okay, and if you... If, and if you say no, I'm just going to call you a liar right now. Okay, you just broke it right now. You broke it right now. And then if you say, I only, and here's some people. I love the, you know, this is my friend, this is my buddy John would be, would be like in this category. Um, I only lie uh, for the right reasons when it's, when it's necessary, right? And so if, if anybody is saying that, I'm just picking on John because I can and, you know, vice versa. But anybody... Uh, says they're lying for the right reasons, well, not only are you a liar, that you're also insane. <laughs> uh, totally insane. And, and, you know, if you want to argue that, I can't argue that insanity. Uh, and you know I don't want to argue about it because I really 
don't care. <laughs> um, but here's the point of the law. Paul makes the point very clearly. The point of the law is that you'll never make it. The law tells you you will never make it. The law is meant to expose how our obedience will inevitably always come up short. It's there for transgressions. That's what Paul says. So the word of God says, it's not my idea. I'm just reading the text. If you're unfamiliar with the story of scripture, selling this idea as a good thing is to quote Mr. Spock again. It's highly illogical. But hang with me. This is a good thing. It's a good thing. It's a necessary step if we're ever going to understand our need. If we're truly ever going to understand our need, we have to understand why the law exists for humanity. John Stott's words on Galatians 3 are super helpful here, and I'll read them to you. It says, after God gave the promise to Abraham, he gave the law to Moses. Why? He had to make things worse before he could make them better. The law exposed sin, provoked sin, condemned sin. The purpose of the law was to lift the lid off man's respectability and disclose what he is really underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, after, under the judgment of God, and helpless to save himself. And the law, law must still be allowed to do its God-given duty today. One of the great faults of the contemporary church is the tendency to soft-pedal sin and judgment. But we must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. To do so is to contradict the plan of God in biblical history. It's not a fragmented story, guys. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed him to himself. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear. And it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. That's beautiful imagery, right? It's without, without seeing the darkness of our sin, the gospel doesn't shine brightly and become beautiful as it has always intended and designed by God to be. So you need the law. You need your sin and you need to see it so it amplifies the goodness of God in your life. That's what Paul is saying. I think this is good stuff. Hopefully now, we're beginning to see the blessing of the law. Because being a breaker of it is meant to drive us to the grace of God. Breaking the law is meant to drive us to the, to the grace of God. We can go other places, but God wants, a, wants it to drive uh, us to himself. But before we can wrap up these thoughts on the law, Paul employs two metaphors, trap and tutor, in verse 23 and 24, to bring his point all the way home. Verse 23, he says, Now before, the, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. You see, first the law is a, a trap. Before faith came, we were held captive, or we were trapped by it, trapped under the law imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. Uh, basically what this means in the Greek is that you're literally not going anywhere, okay? That's a joke and it didn't work. Um, <laughs> second, uh, the law is a tutor 
under whose supervision we live. The law was put into place to lead us to Christ. The tutor is an educator, pointing us to the answer, but not ever giving them to us. And that's the function that Paul says the law plays in our life. In both, both cases, Timothy Keller explains that the trap, he calls it a guard, which is probably better, but doesn't work with my alliteration, Mike. So uh, we're going with trap. The trap and the tutor remove freedom. And in both cases, the relationship with the law is not intimate or personal. It is based on rewards and punishment. And in both cases, we are treated as children or worse. That's what happens when we understand the law through our tutor and this trap. Additionally, um, Keller gives a, a really important, a really good grid, which I've adapted a bit to help us evaluate whether or not we've understood or misunderstood the role the law plays in the life of an individual believer. Okay? First, he says, all non-gospel-based religion can be characterized by A, a sense of bondage. If, if, if it's non-gospel religious that you are religion that you are practicing, it, be, it, it always comes with a sense of bondage. If it's law, not gospel, you're living by, then it's a trap. It's a prison. B, uh, an impersonal relationship with the divine, motiva- motivated by a desire for rewards and a fear of punishment. That sounds so much like people in the church today, right? Uh, A non-gospel relationship with God is a transactional one, meaning I'll give you God and then I will therefore receive something good from you in return. And then C, a non-gospel-based religion can be characterized by anxiety about one's standing before God. If someone has not understood the the sheer grace of God in their life, then their life is marked by despair and and exhaustion or or total arrogance, right? Exhaustion, despair, or arrogance. Either I got this, I'm that one person who is fulfilling the law with my life. Like, I'm that one person who's doing it. Or you're saying, I'll never do it. And this is horrible. Like, I, I, I hate this. And that's what happens when you remove Christ out of the equation. But in the gospel-centric relationship, the law points to, A, a life not of confinement, but of actual freedom, true freedom, true freedom, freedom in your mind and your heart and your life, where you can actually take a breath and rest and embrace the yoke that Jesus freely gives. B, not an impersonal, but a personal relationship with God. It's not transactional love, but we're astonished by the ridiculous exchange that God has given us on our behalf. We brought nothing to the table. We're lawbreakers, and yet he pours out his riches through Christ Jesus upon us. It's like that night sky and, that, and those beautiful glimmering stars shining through. We're overwhelmed at the picture. We're overwhelmed with the story. And so we live from a place of saying, it's not transactional in terms of what I, if I do, he, he's, he's in, in turn owes me a, a big deal. It's, he's already given me so much. 
And I live out of that place. I live, I, live, I live out of that astonishment. God, you love me. And then see, it's not immaturity, but maturity of character that develops in a, in a truly Christocentric relationship with God. In other words, it means you're slowly becoming more of a complete human being. In other words, you're becoming more like Jesus as you, as you age. Hopefully, hopefully what you've seen in the thinking of all these thoughts and me rattling off so much information and talking really fast because I drink more coffee. <laughs> Hopefully you see that the law doesn't replace the grace of God, but it is an essential piece of the puzzle. And without it, you'll never understand the whole picture that God is painting. God paints a whole picture. And each piece is important. I know some people don't want to talk about these things. They say, well, God, Christ has, has died and given us this, this, new, this new beautiful reality. And that's true. But, but if God has given us all these pieces, we must put them in place to see the whole picture. And so, in conclusion, is the law everything? Or is it nothing? My answer is yes. I know that sounds really, really esoteric, but hopefully I've proved my point at this point. You see, the law and grace are teammates. It's, a, it's really, it's, a, it's like a good um, uh, cop show. One, one is a good cop, one is a bad cop. But they're, all, but they're both working for the same purpose. Grace will always um, come from the promise made to Abraham, but you will never truly know your need until Moses' law comes and crushes our ideas that we are decent people. Until the law comes and crushes your idea that you are a decent human being, you will never know that you need grace. This is the danger of religion. Religion says, I'll just take morality, because morality is something I can do, and as long as I stack up enough moralism... I have, I have a sample size to, to show other people that they're out and I am in. But it's a misunderstanding and misinterpretation of the law, right? Because Paul, he says, it's for transgressions. And then Jesus again. Go, go to Matthew chapter 5. Read through the Sermon on the Mount. Read how Jesus amplifies the law because Jesus, he told, he, they told him, they were, the same thing they were telling, telling Paul, they were telling Jesus Jesus, they said, Jesus, you know what he's doing? He's, he's tossing out the Torah. He's throwing out the law. He does not care about what God has written. So he's tossing it out. And what did Jesus say to them? He said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I didn't come to toss it and trash it. I came to fulfill it. And that's why when we think about his blood being the blood of the new covenant, gosh, that is so powerful and so life-giving, peace-inducing, Restful. So I'll say it again. Law and grace are teammates. Bit of bad cop, good cop. Grace will always come from the promise made to Abraham, but you will, all, you will never truly know your need until Moses' law comes and crushes our idea that we are decent people. The law creates and maintains necessary parameters between Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, 
But only the grace of Christ is, caping, is capable of making us all one in him. That's what he basically says in this section without me teaching forever. So questions. As we consider these thoughts and wrap it up a little bit, number one, as I currently understand Christianity today, do I feel free or trapped? Do I feel like I know it all and have it all together or am I, or am I, or am I free? Free to not know. Free to just be loved. Or am I trapped trying to show everybody that I'm keeping up with God's law perfectly? It all sounds like a nightmare, doesn't it? Number two, when I am tempted to rely on my law keeping for security, which efforts do I tend to trust in? What is, it, what is your go-to moral place that says, well, I'm better than the other guy. I'm better than the other gal. What's, what's that thing that you go, back, you go to and you're like, well, I'm, not as, I'm not as crummy as, you know, whatever. And then number three, uh, to help you diagnose your heart, ask yourself, what causes you to feel despair in life? What makes me feel proud about myself? See, if you, if, you, if you divorce it from the gospel, you divorce it from the work, person and work of Jesus Christ, you only are led to two places, possible of two places, and that's either despair or pride. Despair or pride. So where do you find yourself? Hopefully, you take that third option of embracing the way of Christ and resting in that completely. But if we, if we, if we try to pursue God apart from God and his son in a sacrifice for us, believing in the power of the covenant given to Abraham, then we are ultimately going to find our place in a, in, a, in a position of despair or arrogance. I got this, which is, which is our way. Let's just, like, let's just be honest. How many of you like to ask for help? Call and say, this is where I'm really, really struggling. This is where I need help. Or how many of us try to work harder, try better, do, do more? That's like John's thing. Try better, do harder, whatever it is. Uh, do more. <laughs> whatever, John. Um, uh, and, and, and how many of you live in that place? Just working, constantly working. I'm going to get there, going to get there, going to get there, going to get there. And it's, I'm like, I got tired even saying that. You know, it's tired living that. So one more thing. I'm going to close with an allegory. Hopefully it will help put a capstone on this, and then I'm done. But uh, Ray Ortland, he wrote this uh, allegory out of Romans 7, um, called, entitled, Who Are You Married To?, which I think really helps us evaluate and understand the role of grace and law in our, in our relationship to it. But he says, and it starts with Romans 7, 2 through 4. It says, A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you, are, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to one another. And here's what he says. He says, we are married to Mr. Law. Or we were married to Mr. Law. He was a good man in his way, but he did not understand our weaknesses. He came home every evening and asked, so, uh, how was your day? Did you do what I told you to do? Uh, did you make the kids behave? Did you waste your time? 
Did you complete everything I put on your to-do list? So, so many demands and expectations. And hard as we tried, we couldn't be perfect. We could never satisfy him. We forgot things that were important to him. We let the children misbehave. We failed in other ways. It was a miserable marriage because Mr. Law always pointed out our failings. And the worst of it was he was always right. But his remedy was always the same. Do better tomorrow. And we didn't because we couldn't. Then Mr. Law died and we remarried, this time to Mr. Grace. Our new husband, Jesus, comes home every evening and the house is a mess. The children are being naughty. Dinner is burning on the stove, and we have even had other men in the house during the day. Still, he sweeps us into his arms and says, I love you. I chose you. I choose you. Uh, I died for you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And our heart melts. We don't understand such love. We expect him to despise us and reject us and humiliate us, but he treats us so well. Uh, We are so glad to belong to him, and now forever we long to be fully pleasing to him. Being married to Mr. Law never changed us, but being married to Mr. Grace is changing us deep within, and it shows. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for revealing yourself in our need of you. God, I pray today as we reflect on the words of Paul here in Galatians chapter 3, that we would take them truly into the deepest places of our heart and ask for your grace to be present there. Lord, wherever we are tempted to be arrogant, to despair, uh, God, I pray that your grace would break in and show us uh, a better and more beautiful way. And as we continue to develop as a church in our local community, Lord, we pray that you would just pour your heart up, up, upon us. And so, God, we thank you for um, these tricky texts, but also if we just take our time, we can see the, the beautiful, simple message um, embedded in them. And uh, for that, God, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.